Welcome to Conversations from the Pale Blue Dot. Today I interview Bible scholar Robert M. Price. I'm eager to get out of this. I think I've written all I'm going to write about it. If you like the show and want it to continue, write a kind review on iTunes or send the link to a friend. And now, my interview with Bob Price. Dr. Bob Price is a Bible scholar that I previously interviewed about the historical Jesus. Today we're going to talk about his latest book, The Case Against the Case for Christ. Bob, welcome back to the show. Oh, great to be back. Thanks for having me. Bob, I love the cover of your book. It it just has the words, The Case Against the Case for Christ, and then a big thumbs down on the cover. <laughs> that always makes me chuckle. And of course, your book is a response to Lee Strobel's book, The Case for Christ. Could you tell us a bit about Strobel's book and why you wrote a response to it? When I was reading apologetics, it was uh, a whole different group of people than are writing today, though uh, almost no difference in the arguments they used. But I decided I have to uh, look into this since it seemed to be everywhere. And uh, to pass it out at Billy Graham rallies, it's like uh, just getting incredible distribution and has for years. And so I was curious about it and have written stuff uh, like this many times before. But I decided if this thing is so ubiquitous, I had to take a look at it, and when I did, I noticed, well, he's got everybody in one place here, of all the people writing today, uh, some of whom by this time I had debated and read other works by them, and I decided, I don't know how wide a distribution I can get for a book, but I at least ought to make some attempt to correct the massive disinformation contained in this thing, uh, and uh, that's what uh, really moved me to, to do it. There's just such, it's just a deposit of smug apologetics masquerading as historical study. And what gets my goat about this is, uh, not just in this book, but whenever they do it, is not that uh, they're, they're trying to propagate the Christian faith. I'm a student of, of comparative religion. I appreciate and love all the religions. I, I don't uh, hate any of them. Uh, be uh, un scholarly, unhumanist thing to do. But uh, I do get my back up when people are misrepresenting the facts and uh, about their own religion or others. And I feel like, well, in that case, I ought to enter the ring, and so I did. Every time they pass out the case for Christ, they, got, they ought to pass out your book as well for a bad chance. But, uh... <laughs> well, that'd be nice. We can, we can pretend. Well, the first couple chapters in The Case for Christ, Lee Strobel's book, defend the Gospels as generally reliable portraits of the historical Jesus. What do you think of that claim? It's completely circular, and it's completely deductive. Uh, all of these guys that he interviews and all the other ones that wrote before are just starting from the conclusion they want as biblical literalists and then kind of retro-engineering the whole argument. What would what state of affairs would get us to, to the end we want? Uh, what would make this good evidence even in the eyes of non-believers? We can't expect them to take the Bible as literal history as we do because we're already Christians and believe it's inspired scripture. No, no, no. That would be circular, but uh, 
suppose we could convince them that inspired or not, it's a good, accurate history. Well, then they'd be face-to-face with the Jesus represented there, and they'd have to take his claims as seriously as if they were in front of him hearing him speak. So let's see if we can create that impression. Now, in a sense, this makes sense to them because they do already believe that it is accurate. It's just they believe it on a dogmatic basis. And if you look carefully at all their arguments, that's what it all boils down to. And it's really just they're trying to obscure the uh, the, the nature of the historical questions. Yeah. And so they're saying we can imagine a scenario by which accurate information might have been transferred uh, from Jesus to his disciples to their disciples and so on. And since it could have happened that way, possibly, uh, we're going to say that it did. And that is. But that just doesn't follow. There are many possible ways in which this material could have gotten to us, and you have to deal with the gospel text to see if it bears out their optimistic view or a more pessimistic view of it. It would be just as wrong to say, well, look, miracles can't happen. Uh, I'm God Almighty, so I know such things. Uh, They never have happened. I have a time machine in my garage, and I've gone back and checked and uh, videotaped the whole of history, so I know nothing like that. And and therefore, these books must be filled with legend. If you did that, that would be equally fallacious, though people don't. Uh, You'd have to, in either case, say, now, does this sound like eyewitness testimony? Uh, Does this, uh, uh, is any of it phrased in a way that, uh, let's say, table talk books of uh, Luther or Whitehead or any famous person are? Uh, People would say, oh, I remember when the great man said this or that. Uh, I remember when he did this or that. No, no, it's not that at all. Just little nuggets of uh, rumor and, and, and report, many of which contradict one another all over the place. And so you wind up thinking, see, is it more likely that the same man said all of these contradictory things or that people wanted to claim his authority for many opposing viewpoints and sought in that way to win the debate? Oh, yeah, Jesus didn't want us to fast. Oh, yeah, well, I have had this saying here uh, uh, somewhere where uh, he says that uh, we should, uh, and so on and so on. And both of them make the rounds in the name of Jesus, and they're finally collected in Gospels, which swarm with contradictions. So it doesn't matter. You can't. Like, anything is good to start with as a hypothesis. Let's see if the data is consistent with an accurate transmission of Jesus' tradition. Or let's see if the data is uh, consistent with uh, legendary embellishment. Could be either one. Let's see what it looks like. But that is the the step that they never take. They they will do anything to straightjacket the evidence to their hypothesis, which they got from dogma. It doesn't matter where they got it. A fortune cut. Teller could have told it to him. A channeler, I don't care. Uh, Marley's ghost could have suggested it to him. It doesn't matter. Uh, we need to, to test it, and when you do, it seems to me they're just distorting the, the results. Another chapter talks about the evidence for Jesus outside the New Testament. What's the reality of the situation there? There isn't any that's relevant, if there is any at all, and that's in question. 
uh, it seems very, very clear that the only thing that would be a good candidate for evidence would be the famous testimonium Flavianum passage in Flavius Josephus's book Antiquities of the Jews. And uh, in it, in, in our texts, which stem from many centuries after he wrote in the very late first century, uh, we have this paragraph that says, About this time there arose a man named Jesus, if indeed it is proper to call him a man. For he did uh, wonders, literally paradoxes, among us, and taught things that men who love wisdom heed and and uh, made many disciples both among his uh, our own people and among the Greeks. Um, when he was uh, put to death at the urging of the chief men among us by Pontius Pilate, his uh, disciples didn't abandon him for they for he rose from the dead and presented them, himself alive to them three days later. He did this and many other marvelous things. Therefore, he is the Christ predicted by the prophets, and the tribe of Christians named after him endures to this day. I'm just quoting from my out of my head, but that's almost verbatim. Well, that wasn't in the copies of Josephus written about a hundred years later that origin of Alexandria was reading. Uh, he, his great church father, uh, he said, well, he'd read it and said, well, one thing's for certain, uh, Josephus didn't believe Jesus was the Christ. Though in this version we have, it says just the opposite. And furthermore, it cannot possibly have written by, been, been written in Jew, much less one <laughs> who staked his whole livelihood on the flattery that the emperor Vespasian was the Jewish messiah. Uh, so I mean, it just is impossible. And it, it seems very clear that someone, some Christian has just uh, decided to supplement his copy. That, you know, I want a full account of the events uh, in Israel. And gee, they, they've left out Jesus. Well, let me uh, correct that. And then that got uh, copied over the ages into into the text. Uh, there there are many Christians that have always just felt they could not afford to lose this, and uh, so they've said, well, maybe uh, Christians beefed it up a bit, but the Josephus had originally spoken about a, a prophet named Jesus or something, but that that is all just speculation, and uh, and it, it clashes with the context, it doesn't fit with the topic Josephus is discussing, and, and it's just obviously written by a Christian. Well, so that, it seems to me, is, is so tenuous that even if you held that it's possible it's authentic, you can't take it as, as solid evidence. I mean, when something is under dispute itself, to such a degree, it really just is, is uh, useless. Well, uh, there's another passage in which he's talking, Josephus is talking about the martyrdom of a certain James, uh, who had acted as the high priest, and uh, while there was no Roman procurator, the Sanhedrin, and under the leadership of Ananus, had this uh, had this man James, the, the brother of Jesus, stoned to death. But if you look a little farther, it, it says that James and Jesus were the sons of a guy named Damnaeus, uh, and that they were candidates for the high priesthood. That it wasn't Jesus of Nazareth at all. Uh, and so it just doesn't. Uh, it, it's not even about those characters. And with but let's assume Josephus actually had written all that stuff and it really referred to Jesus, 
does he claim to have met Jesus, or is he simply attesting that in his day, uh, some 60 years after the ostensible crucifixion, that Christians were saying they had a historical founder named Jesus? The latter is all we can be sure of. If what we would need to anchor Jesus as a reference by a non-New Testament writer would be just uh, some letter or something where someone says, you know, I, I had the occasion to hear the famous Jesus of Nazareth, and uh, the rumors about him are wrong, he's a virtuous man or something. So that, that's all we would need. We have things like that for Peregrinus, the uh, Christian uh, cynic, and for Apollonius of Tyana. But we, we have, this isn't that. Uh, and uh, that's what we would require, and we, we don't have anything of the kind. It might be that Jesus existed, and that uh, just as an accident, that uh, no mentions of him have survived. Could be, but again, we don't know what led to this lack of evidence. All we know is there isn't any contemporary evidence. And no evidence is no evidence. So, you know, you can't say, well, well it, uh, I can explain how there might not have been, even if there was historical Jesus. Yeah, I know you can. Imagination is limitless. Uh, but, but the thing is, we don't know, and speculation is not knowledge. Well, another chapter in Strobel's book is about archaeology and the historical Jesus. What does archaeology have to say about the portrait of Jesus that evangelicals like to defend? That's well put, because... They're defending a particular slate of arguments as well as what they are arguments for. Like It's like their apologetics arguments have become dogmas themselves. And one of them that comes from the time of William Foxwell Albright uh, in the uh, mid-20th century, mm-hmm. he was a Presbyterian uh, layman who uh, got heavy into biblical archaeology, especially the Old Testament. But he was trying to show that, uh, that you could look any place you wanted and find places corresponding to the Bible locations. Well, since then, uh, his approach has been debunked and abandoned by biblical archaeologists. He just said, well, there's supposed to be a Sodom and Gomorrah. Any evidence of a town over here? Okay, that's it. That's Sodom. Uh, there's, he didn't really have any, any solid uh, facts. It's, it's astounding in retrospect. But now you've got people like Thomas L. Thompson and, and Niels Peter Lemke and a, a number of others who have shown that there is no archaeological evidence of a great Davidic kingdom of any kind of exodus or conquest, that the, there, there is nothing in the Sinai Peninsula so that the Old Testament is on the same level with the Book of Mormon. It, it seems to be simply legend and fiction. Uh, now, what does that have to do with Jesus? Well, the same thing applies there, though, of course, there's not as much ground to cover, not as much actually happens there. But they've often said that uh, whoever wrote those Gospels certainly knew something about Palestine at the time, for instance, that uh, there was this pool of Bethesda that had five porticos. Well, a lot of people knew about that. It's like having King Kong go up the Empire State Building. You know, there really is an Empire State Building, but there wasn't any King Kong, unfortunately. <laughs> and uh, But what's worse than that is there is no archaeological evidence of synagogues in Galilee in the first century. 
And now there are two exceptions, one at Caesarea, if I forget the other one, but a Hellenized town. And the point is that synagogues were established outside of Palestine for diaspora Jews, since they couldn't easily go to the temple. Well, when Hellenized Jews from the diaspora came back home to their ancestral homeland, anyway, of, of Palestine, some of them needed a home away from home at home. They were used to synagogue worship, even though technically they didn't need it, but they wanted to continue that. So they, uh, it's like if you moved back to Russia, where your ancestors had lived, but you, you really enjoyed going to the Slavonic Hall in Singak, New Jersey, uh, you might establish a local Slavonic Hall, though what would be the point? Well, you just kind of like the way they did it. So there, some did establish synagogues in the Holy Land, but it's no coincidence, therefore, that the two we know of were in these centers of Hellenized diaspora Jews that had returned to, to the homeland. But that's it. There, there are no, like, native Galileans synagogues that early that we have any evidence for. Uh, and and the, the problem with this is, what happened to them? I mean, it's, uh, Howard Clark Key and others say that, well, they they met uh, and they had places of prayer. Sometimes that means as in Acts 16 uh, down by the riverside. They might not have had buildings. And so apologists say, all right, that, that's all it means. Jesus just went to prayer meetings uh, wherever they were. But it's pretty clear. They're thinking of, of an institution with a building. He goes into a synagogue and they hand him the scroll and there's a, a president of the synagogue and all that stuff. That's just anachronistic. Someone is writing based on uh, post-70 A.D. Uh, conditions where Jews and Pharisees, well, Pharisees in, in Galilee, the same thing. There weren't any until they were forced out of Jerusalem by the Romans in 70 A.D., yet the Gospels have uh, Jesus pursued by Pharisees in Galilee. It's anachronistic. They have him referred to as rabbi, which was only coming into circulation as a common title at the end of the first century. But the worst thing, the worst anachronism is that uh, all the evidence we have indicates Galilee did not contain a town named Nazareth at the time Jesus is said to have lived. It's not just that there's no mention of it anywhere in Josephus or the Mishnah, which mentions hundreds of towns in Galilee. But worse than that, we know from detailed archaeological findings that the Nazareth Plateau had been inhabited for many hundreds of years, but, but for huge stretches, it had not been. Well, in the time of Jesus, there, there had not been a town there for hundreds of years, but they began to rebuild it around the mid-first century. Now, this perfectly fits the hypothesis of, of a lot of scholars who said, you know, I wonder if Jesus was from Nazareth, even if there was one, or if that's not a mistake because of the spelling Nazarene. We hear that there was a Jewish sect called the Nazareans, a lot like the Essenes, uh, and Paul is called the ringleader of the sect of the Nazareans, even in Acts. That doesn't sound like the guys from Nazareth. You know, the boys are back in town. Uh, and and uh, so the theory was, could someone later have confused 
Nazareth with Nazareans. Well, now archaeological study shows that must be what happened because there wasn't even a town of Nazareth uh, in the time Jesus is placed historically, though there was when the Gospels were written. Uh, because you, you can tell very specifically when it was inhabited, and, uh, and and it wasn't in the time of Jesus. Now, you'll look in vain for this information in, like, the Doubleday uh, Anchor Bible Dictionary and so on, because a lot of mainstream scholarship just takes a lot of the old fundamentalism for granted. They don't want to deal with the implications of this any more than the apologists do. But Rene Salm has shown, yeah, uh, no, no Nazareth at the time. And with all of these little insights, it, it just indicates, yeah, the Gospels are written uh, somewhere else in some other time. Uh, they just do oh one last thing and I'll shut up on this. It's not quite archaeology, but it's the same sort of picture. There have been several books written recently by uh, critics like uh, Charles Hedrick and uh, Bernard Brandon Scott showing the oddity of the way agriculture and uh, shepherding and a number of things of Palestinian life, how they're described in the parables. And they, uh, Cross and others, uh, point to the oddity and say, now you see, whoever told these parables is trying to shock you with the uncharacteristic behavior, the wasteful throwing of seeds out before the ground is plowed, the stupidity of the uh, shepherd leaving 99 sheep to the mercy of the wolves while he goes and looks for one lost one. Who would do this? And they say, oh, Jesus must have had some subtle Zen point in mind. No, no, the simple explanation is whoever wrote these things knew nothing about the common uh, life of Palestine, and therefore they weren't written there. They're far from any kind of eyewitness uh, sources. And so the archaeology, the anthropology, the sociology, the whole thing just shows we are not dealing with anyone who lived at the right place or time. Right, because the idea is that the author didn't know that there weren't synagogues in Galilee, didn't know that there weren't Pharisees in Galilee at the time, all these types of things, that's what you're saying is an anachronistic? Yeah, and, and even the debates Jesus has with the Pharisees caricature the Pharisees' viewpoint insofar as we know it from the Mishnah. Uh, that might not be what they actually thought either, but at least it is what their successors passed down, like Jesus is harassed for healing people on the Sabbath, whereas we know from the Mishnah, uh, the rabbis, at least whose opinions survive, say that, oh no, that's fine, you can heal with a word, as they said, an incantation on the Sabbath, no problem. But uh, for a physician to have office hours and to be paid for his work, well, of course, he can't do that, but that's but they specifically exempted the kind of thing Jesus and others did. Now, why would there be such a debate? Or uh, and, uh, Apparently there wouldn't, but uh, to they're making caricature straw men out of Jesus' enemies so he can hiss at them. Or uh, the Corban thing. Jesus really gives it to the Pharisees in Mark chapter 7 for allowing the practice of uh, people to say, well, Mom, Dad, I know it would be good if I supported you in your old age, but that's not pious enough for me. I'm taking the money you would have lived on and donating it to the temple. Uh, good luck! 
Uh, and uh, Jesus says, well, what are you doing? Doesn't it say you shall honor your father and mother? Look how you're just making the, tradi- the commandment of God moot by your tradition, which you seem to prefer. Well, you know, it's interesting that that issue comes up many times in the Mishnah, and every time the, the scribes say, oh, well, of course, if you find out your aged parents need money that you donated to the temple, forget it, get the money back. It's like, they, as far as we know, they all had that view. Or, um, oh, there are various other ones. That, what could you do on the Sabbath? Is it some shocker that Jesus says, hey, the Sabbath is made for man, not man for the Sabbath? Well, there's two or three other places where other rabbis say, the Sabbath is delivered unto you. You are not delivered unto it. And so on and so on. It's like, who, who were these people that Jesus that had these inhuman views? Uh, well, we don't have any record of them. I guess they could have been around somewhere, but it just appears this is not historical. You have a zoo full of these problems. And this is what I mean when I say, yeah, it's, it's certainly possible that Jesus' tradition could have been passed on accurately. Let's see if there's any clue as to whether it was or not. And it seems to me that the clues are just uh, massive and ample that no, wherever this stuff came from, it was not uh, an accurate portrayal of what was going on. Well, Bob, what evidence is it that leads us to think that, for example, Nazareth was just being built up in the middle part of the first century, or that there weren't Pharisees in Galilee in uh, during Jesus's life in the early part of the first century? Uh, what sort of evidence do we have for those claims? Well, I refer you to Rene Salm on the archaeology of it, his book, uh, The Myth of Nazareth. He shows in great detail the grounds there are for dating the little potsherds and cups and uh, bits of masonry and so on, how archaeologists date them generally in terms of the style. Uh, uh, are they, do they reflect trade with neighboring areas? Do we have independent uh, criterion for when they made the stuff? How were they painted? Uh, where were they found? Uh, and he says there's some items that there's just no clues on. But uh, with virtually every piece of evidence people have set forth as being from uh, an early first century Nazareth, uh, it turns out that there, there is no evidence. It's simply guesswork, or the evidence indicates it's, it's a good bit later. And, and in each case, he shows why that is. It's very detailed. He, he looks at every bit of the evidence. A classic example of this would be, uh, recently I saw uh, James Charlesworth from Princeton, who is no fundamentalist, but is what at least what James Barr called a maximal conservative. He, he always slants it. Right. If this, he always slants it the right-wing way, if you can. He has this, this cup, and he says, well, this one is later, but they found a similar one in Nazareth, and, uh, and that just shows it's from the time of Jesus and so on. Well, immediately, archaeologists went on the Internet and said, wait a second. Uh, the, the person that discovered this thing said, it's, it comes from the Roman period. That's hundreds of years. Nobody said there was any evidence that it was that early. Or similarly, a boat found in the, uh, the Sea of Galilee, first or second century. Nobody was very specific except apologists. 
or some building in Capernaum. They said, I bet this is Simon Peter's house. Wait a minute. There's no evidence of this. And the sound just goes through every suggested piece of evidence, whether from archaeologists or, or uh, relic mongers. As for the, the other part of it, like Pharisees in Galilee, well, it's interesting to see what the descendants of the Pharisees, the rabbis, said in the Mishnah, which comes from about a hundred years or so after. It's at least as close as we're ever going to get. And they said that at least they trace it back to pre-70 A.D. figures. And they say things like, Oh, Galilee, thou who hatest the Torah. And they just weren't very interested because people in Galilee were not interested in, in studying the Scripture. Uh, one man said that he had, one scribe said he had sojourned in Galilee for about a year at least. It may have been longer, I forget. But he said in that time, not one Jew asked him anything about the Torah. He couldn't believe it, unlike down in Judah. Huh. Plus, a lot of the people in Galilee were late converts from paganism during Hasmonean times. So what evidence we have indicates that they wouldn't have been there. They would have been around the temple, which their whole lifestyle was based on. They were laymen who lived in a state of priestly purity beyond the actual dictates of the Torah. So we, we just don't hear about Pharisees there until the Romans drove them in, into there. It could be the evidence is wrong or unrepresentative, but that's true of any inquiry into the past. As F.C. Bauer said, anything is possible, but the historian wants to know what is probable. Right. Well, Greg Boyd has a chapter in Lee Strobel's book, The Case for Christ, about how the Jesus of history is the same as the Jesus of contemporary Protestant religion. How do you respond to that? Well, that's just uh, preposterous, uh, though you, though the Boltman makes as good a case uh, for that uh, than uh, as, as any apologist, but which uh, Protestants is one interested in? I mean, everybody wants to make Jesus over in their own image. Uh, the only one who could get past that agenda was Albert Schweitzer. He's the only one that said, you know, if we find out what Jesus was like, it might be that he's not like the dogma creature of, of the Orthodox, uh, the second person of the Trinity uh, on Earth, but it might be that he's not like the cool humanistic uh, hero of the liberals either. And uh, once he did his famous uh, quest of the historical Jesus book, he said, yeah, Jesus to him seemed to be an embarrassment to modern Christianity, uh, a kind of a benign fanatic with, with great moral views, but a kind of a fanatical opinion that the world was soon to end, and based on that, one ought not live as you know, business as usual, turn the other cheek, uh, give away all you own, etc., because the final judgment is at hand. He says, this right. Jesus is a source of spiritual power, but not the Jesus anybody wants. And Greg, uh, who, who I know and I think very highly of him in many ways, I just don't think he uh, escapes the trap. He's just saying he's using the same tired arguments that, uh, oh yeah, we can defend that Jesus said and did these things, and here's our interpretation of them, so luckily Jesus agrees with us. And it's just ventriloquism, in my opinion. 
Well, another chapter in Strobel's book says that Jesus actually claimed to be the Son of God. What does biblical scholarship have to say about that? I just shake my head in amazement whenever I read this, and one constantly does. Uh, C.S. Lewis really bet all his chips on this in his famous argument that Jesus must have been the devil of hell, the son of God, or on a level with a guy who thinks he's a poached egg. Uh, and and the, the big flaw, well, there are more than one, but one of the biggies is, do we know Jesus made such highfalutin claims about himself? Uh, even if you take all of the evidence at face value, uh, which I'm not eager to do, but suppose you did, it's not at all clear that uh, the gospel Jesus says such a thing. I mean, you can't even find a place where Jesus says, I am the Messiah. There's not one. Uh, it's, uh, the closest you ever come is someone apparently saying to him, are you? And he says yes, depending on which manuscript you're reading. Uh, but there, there's certainly no place where he says anything like this. In fact, I'm amused that they will quote John's Gospel, where Jesus will say something that doesn't quite add up to that. And then Jesus' enemies will uh, say, oh, you see there? He's making himself equal with God. He's the same guy who's saying, he's breaking the Sabbath. He's demon-possessed. Are those the, the, the uh, interpreters that the evangelist means us to take seriously? I don't think so. Uh, in fact, uh, when, when they, they take up stones to stone him, and he says, well, okay, which one of my good deeds is it that, that's deserving capital punishment? And he says, uh, well, uh, none of your good deeds. It's blasphemy because you claim that God is your own father. You're making yourself equal to God. Well, if Jesus was a good evangelical, he would have said, well, what's wrong with that? I am God. But he doesn't say that, even in the Gospel of John. He says, hey, look, remember in uh, Psalm 82, I think it is, uh, where it says to the people, I said you are gods? Now, if, if Scripture says to those who receive the Word of God, you are gods, then what are you giving me trouble? Because all I said was, I am the Son of God. And that doesn't sound to me what the, like, if, if they were right about this, you'd have Jesus going around saying, hey, everybody, second person of the Trinity here. Uh, there's none of that. Uh, was Jesus a monotheist? I mean, that's one question they completely beg. Since nobody had ever heard of the doctrine of the Trinity, what could Jesus be understood as saying if he did say he was God? A God, a new God, a different one, Jehovah himself? They just don't don't care about this because they're just trying to make Jesus a ventriloquist dummy for, for doctrine that comes from centuries later. Uh, and I, I don't know that uh, the early Christians didn't think Jesus was Jehovah God. I don't find the notion offensive or something, but the evidence is just very nuanced and fragmentary. Uh, and I, it's not clear to me even in the New Testament writers thought Jesus was God. You could read it that way, but it's ambiguous. And they're just, once again, not interested in it from a scholarly, exegetical standpoint. They're just trying to proof text dogma that they feel you must believe or you will fry in hell. And so that they have quite an agenda, to put it mildly. 
Well, what about the claim that Jesus fulfilled Old Testament prophecies about who the Messiah was going to be? Is that true? I don't think there even are any Old Testament prophecies about a Messiah. Uh, The best you can find is the statements in Ezekiel that God will send David to shepherd his people. Does that mean a Davidic heir will come to the throne again? I'm guessing that's what it means, but it doesn't say. Virtually every other one of these things that is brought out as a messianic prophecy like Isaiah 9, Isaiah 12, Zechariah, this and that, Amos, and so on, where, where like, this is, uh, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, uh, the government shall be upon his shoulders, he shall be called, and all that stuff. Uh, or the lion will lie down with the lamb, and uh, all, all these things. This is typical rhetoric of birth and or enthronement oracles, of which we have hundreds of examples from all the ancient Middle Eastern monarchies. Whenever you had, the only uncertainty here is whether these, these pro forma oracles would be issued when the royal heir was born or when he took the throne, and that's the ambiguous part, because sometimes they felt like he became God's son, or Marduk's son, or whatever, as he took the throne. So they would, like in Psalm 2, I will tell of the decree of Yahweh. He has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask, and I will give the nations as your heritage, and so forth. This is just typical for all these monarchies. They're not prophecies. They're just saying in big, mythical terms, the word, just like Obama did. Once he, uh, once he was elected, he said, this will be the day when the, uh, the, the oceans retreat and when the planet begins to heal. Uh, I mean, this is some estimate of his own presidency. Well, he's, <laughs> he's brought back the kind of rhetoric that they all used to use on those occasions. Huh. It, it, they're not actually predictions. They're just best wishes for the new regime or the new heir. There are uh, the two major ones, though, that they like to quote, are not even that. One of them, is Isaiah 53, uh, this mentions nothing about a Messiah or a king or a son of David, uh, in, which were later messianic categories. But uh, this, if anything, appears to be about part of the humiliation ritual that was part of the re-enthronement ritual of the new year every year when the, the, they figured the earth had run out of steam, the crops had perished because of the seasonal change, and now it was about to start over again, and they figured that the king had to be re-enthroned, and the king would act out the myth whereby uh, the the young god had once defeated the dragons and been given the throne by the older gods. Uh, But uh, during the the process, he was charged with sin, and that's why the world had run down. Uh, And they'd take his crown off so the high priest would slap him in the face, etc. But then he would uh, say no. He's vindicated. It was not his sins. Uh, And and, uh, 
therefore it was the people's sins that he bore, and then he would defeat the dragon and so forth. All of this is, I mean, this is not something that is spelled out in the Bible, though there are so many allusions to it, that once you do see it spelled out in Babylonian and other neighboring uh, myths and their texts, you instantly recognize, aha, this is the zitz and laban, this is the life setting of these passages. And uh, that's what seems to be going on there. It has nothing to do with a future suffering Messiah. The only other one is Psalm 22, which people take to be a prediction of the crucifixion. It says nothing about that. Uh, in fact, we can tell just what it is about. It's uh, an individual lament psalm, as they call them, where uh, anybody, usually the king, but derivatively anybody, when they were really up to their neck with creditors or avengers or enemies out to get them, they could come to the temple and say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? And so on. And, and at the end, so I can count on my bones. Animals are snarling and biting me, and, and they, people have given me up for dead, they're parting my garments among them as if I'm dead already, uh, and, and he says, but even at the end, he says, I'm not giving up hope, I know even now you can intervene, and, and so on. Well, this is no prediction of anything, and when you read the crucifixion account in Mark, the earliest one, and you notice, this sounds suspiciously like Psalm 22, you have to notice it because Mark does not say, and thus was the prophecy fulfilled. He doesn't say there's any prophecy. And in fact, what happened is that since he has simply heard that Jesus died and rose, and is the first to try to fill in any detail, he goes to Scripture and decides, well, maybe I can get some details from this. And that, of course, implies there wasn't any historical memory for him to rely upon, or he'd never go to, to Scripture to try to fill in the gap. Uh, so, so it backfires, this appeal to Scripture, since the, they're taken out of context every time. You have to ask yourself, well, who would do this and why? Well, if people were using a kind of, exit, a kind of esoteric means of interpreting Scripture, like the Dead Sea Scrolls people did, taking it out of context, like the Kabbalah, and trying to press out of it some new meaning, maybe if those are the links they had to go to to fill in the so-called life of Jesus, you got to start asking yourself if there was any life of Jesus, and that's one big reason I think there wasn't. Another chapter in Lee Strobel's book is about the resurrection of Jesus. How do the contributors to Strobel's book argue for the resurrection? Well, they seem to think they're living in the 18th century. Uh, they're using a style of argumentation that was floated back then by rationalist Protestants, this strange group uh, that had an agenda, a kind of rule of an evolution, they called transitional forms. These are people that were so impressed with Newton and the idea of natural law and how that glorified God that he'd created such a flawless mechanism. They thought that uh, miracles, or the notion that God would have to stop the thing and make a mid-course correction to, to save the butts of his favorites, they said, that's really superstition. Don't you see, like Schleiermacher said, it's, it's more sublime to picture a God who creates a world that works like a well-oiled machine, and that's what he did. And so uh, here's, the, here's the position they're in. They're 
believers in God and in Jesus Christ and in the Bible, but they realize that to have God whispering into the ears of the Bible writers an inerrant account was superstition. That would be a miracle uh, of the kind that they have abandoned. So they figure now the Bible's got to be accurate or, or we're up the creek. But it can't be accurate because it's divinely inspired. How else would it be? Well, if it were written Old and New Testaments by eyewitnesses, hmm, well, then it must have been. So here are the Protestant rationalists saying, as ridiculous as this sounds, and it's so odd today that people have a hard time even recognizing this, they're saying the Bible is true, even the miracle stories but the ancient writers didn't know what we know. They did believe in miracles. And so we, but they saw what they saw or they wouldn't have written it. So we have to figure out what was really going on. And this is where you get the notion of uh, uh, Jesus uh, uh, feeding the multitudes from a cave mouth where he had a bunch of Keebler elves in there passing out the food unseen by the crowd. So he, he the story is true. It's just that there was no miracle. Or Jesus was not walking on the water. He knew where the stepping stones were. Uh, or that kind of thing where they say, well, yeah, basically it did happen. But, but there weren't any miracles involved, though the poor saps thought so. Well, now, if you bring this to the resurrection... What did they say? Well, they said, the Bible's got to be right. It says Jesus was crucified, and uh, Jesus appeared alive on the third day. All right, both must have happened, but of course there are no miracles. You couldn't expect God to intervene and raise somebody from the dead. So, well, I guess he was crucified, but taken down before he could die. And he was nursed back to health and, and appeared again, still alive on the third day. Well, now, of course... But today's apologists ridicule that. They call it the swoon theory, but they keep the rest of the scenario because notice the logic of the arguments they use. They say, now, no one would deny that Joseph of Arimathea was a real person and had Jesus buried in his own tomb, and then the uh, women disciples came to uh, give him proper uh, burial and the anointing and all that stuff, uh, and that uh, they were shocked to find there was no body. I mean, Everybody realizes there's no problem with that. Uh, but if that much is true, how can you deny the resurrection? What, are you going to say they just went and knocked at the door of the wrong tomb? And the gardener said, oh, ladies, he's not here. Uh, behold where they laid him as he pointed to the tomb next door. But the stupid women said, oh, you mean they laid him here, but he's not here? Oh, he's risen from the dead. That's just like the life of Brian, right? Where, uh, <laughs> where, where'd he go? Oh, he's been taken up. Oh, no, there he is over there. Uh, and, and it's ridiculous. They say, see, that couldn't be. Or, uh, well, maybe. Why? So the tomb was empty. Now, why was it empty? Would the, uh, the disciples have stolen it? Well, why would they? Uh, well, there's no possible reason for that. Would these 
Sanhedrin have taken the body? Well, they could have, but uh, if they did, wouldn't they have exposed it uh, when the resurrection preaching started to say, wait a minute, wait a minute, here's your Messiah for all the good it's going to do you. See, he's dead as a doornail, uh, and, and so on and so on. So you see, there's no other plausible explanation for Joseph of Arimathea's tomb being found empty by the, the, the women, much less the visions. Right? They see Jesus. Now, this couldn't have been a hallucination, because you don't have shared hallucinations, even though you do. Uh, it, they, it couldn't have been wishful thinking, because they were skeptics when it happened. I don't see what the problem is there at all, but, uh, but they're, so they're trying to eliminate any worldly rationalist uh, approach just like the rationalist Protestants did, and uh, uh, because they're 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 getting you to take for granted that everything but the punchline is established as accurate, because of course it's all written by eyewitnesses, and uh, and and therefore if you're going to go that far, you might as well say, well, I guess the rest of it's true too, but they're hoodwinking you because there is no reason to take any of the story to be true. It's possible it's true, but that's uh, you know, that's a very different thing. And There's a great uh, online cartoon thing called Jesus and Mo, which somehow they haven't been killed for with a fatwa yet, where Jesus and Muhammad are talking. And, uh, yeah, I love that cartoon. And uh, in it, uh, Jesus is arguing for his own resurrection, and Muhammad isn't buying it. Uh, and, he, and he says, what about the empty tomb? And he says, look, it's just part of the same story. You can't prove one part of a story from another part of the story. It's like saying, well, the yellow brick road must have led somewhere, so there must have been a, an emerald city of Oz. Sorry, you know, the whole story is made up. Uh, so the trick is to get people to believe in the inerrancy of the Bible, essentially. Well, it says it. It's, it must be true. Uh, and, and if you still wanted to make the resurrection, you find a better ending. Uh, that's a whole different thing than finding a better historical explanation. So they, they're once again, they're begging the whole question. It all reduces, though they don't say it, to saying, I believe in the Bible because the Bible said I should. It's just amazing, and it's the same thing decade after decade, apologist after apologist. Now, Bob, do you think that apologists do a very good job of responding to the criticism that, for example, you and Earl Doherty and lots of other critics have written of these popular evangelical apologetic arguments? Uh, no, I, I find in, in live debates as well as uh, attempted refutations in print, uh, they, uh, they just deny what uh, Earl or I will say. Uh, or they'll, the favorite tactic, and without any demonstration, or they'll just repeat their point, uh, regardless of the reputation, without addressing it, like the dying and rising gods thing, that there's plenty of evidence for that, but they will simply deny that there is. Uh, but the favorite is, they like to say, well, you're in a minority. Uh, most most of us think like us, uh, and so you must be a crank. Though they are quick to uh, say what Francis Schaeffer did long ago, that you can't assess truth by a majority vote. 
uh, it doesn't matter uh, you know, how many people hold the view of that if you think it does, it's the, uh, the fallacious argument uh, or, or appeal to the majority. And But they're quite happy to rely on that and just to say, well, you know, you, you're just a voice crying in the wilderness. We're just ignoring you as all right-thinking people should. It's, uh, it's really uh, frustrating after a while, which is one uh, big reason I... I'm eager to get out of this. I think I've written all I'm going to write about it. Just you get nowhere with it. I, I guess it might be that the books and the debates provide a resource for a tiny minority of people that are rethinking things, but you're just beating your head against a wall because these people are not scholars. I mean, they know a lot of facts. They're scholars in that sense, but uh, they're, they're just not playing the same game. They're not interested in following the facts wherever they may lead. They're just spin doctors, basically. One reviewer on Amazon commented that this book that you've written now indicates that you may have given up trying to reach across the aisle to Christian fundamentalists. Is there any truth to that? Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's what I'm saying. That I think it's picking up on the tone of it, that uh, often I will even say in this book that, you know, Greg Boyd says this, well, I've argued this point with him before. You know, let's try it one more time. And uh, <laughs> and so I, I try to be friendly and funny. I really like most of these people I've debated personally, but it is just a endless go-round, and I think you can only go through that so many times I'm uh, sort of hoping to be able to just get back into H.P. Lovecraft and that kind of thing. <laughs> well, I can say I find your books to be a tremendous resource, and not because I'm just going to take everything that you, that you say on faith, but because you present a lot of arguments in a very easy-to-read and very entertaining way, and I, I really appreciate all the work that you've done on, on this subject. Oh, I, I appreciate that. Uh, I just want people to make their own uh, synthesis, uh, as I have always enjoyed doing. I, I could not care less if people wind up agreeing with me or they don't. I just feel like I am remiss in my duty if I don't try to provide a, a counter source for this propaganda that uh, Strobel just disgracefully dispenses in the name of Christ. It just is infuriating. Well, Bob, it's been a pleasure to have you on the show again. Well, it's great to, to be here. Thanks a bunch for having me. In the next episode, I'll be interviewing Massimo Piliucci, about science, non-science, and nonsense. So stay tuned for more Conversations from the Pale Blue Dot.